Hi guys, I'm Courtney Fox. And I'm Kathleen Ackert, and we would like to welcome you to Meg's Front Page. This is your podcast to bring you up close and personal with authors who have published recent articles in JMEG and to keep you up to date with the latest in evidence-based practice. When we talk about opioid use and elective gynecologic surgery, really what we, our main concern is not only the patient experience and patient experience with pain, but the risk of persistent opioid use after surgery. All right, I wanted to introduce you all to Dr. Allison Edwards, a urogynecology fellow at the University of Calgary. She completed her obstetrics and gynecology training at the University of Alberta in Edmonton and is originally from St. Albert, Alberta. I want to thank you so much for your time, Dr. Edwards, and arranging to meet with us for the interview today. So we all read your paper, Does Size Matter? Opioid Use After Laparoscopy for Apical Pelvic Organ Prolapse Using an 8 Millimeter versus a 10 to 12 millimeter accessory port. So what was your motivation for conducting this study? Well, thank you so much for having me, first of all. Um, Definitely, it is a pleasure to train in Calgary and be be so close to the mountains and to Banff. Um, We definitely try to take advantage of being in the outdoors on our weekends. The motivation for completing this study uh, was essentially a very much organic response to patients telling us about post-operative pain. Patients were telling us when we were using the larger 10-12 trocar that their pain was mostly localized to that left lower quadrant port site, that it was a big driver for requiring opioids for post-operative analgesia, and that this was not only in the immediate post-operative period, but sometimes lasted uh, beyond that in the six-week post-op period as well. So we wanted to try to find ways that minimized patients' experience of pain after surgery from that port site, and even trying to minimize pain from that port site by not twisting like the sharp trocar blade as it goes into the abdominal wall to avoid muscle shearing with that maneuver, um, and also um, trying to avoid strangulation of tissue when we're putting in the fascial closure suture at the end of our procedure. Even despite doing like really paying attention to those two things, we were still finding that patients were experiencing pain at that site and wanted to find a way to introduce needles that didn't require that port size. So it was very much a response to our patients telling us about pain. Awesome. Um, So could you, in a few words, just briefly describe your study design? So the research methodology that we used um, is a design referred to as a quasi-randomized study design, and it's known as a natural experiment. As clinicians, we really always like to see randomized controls trials because it controls for confounding and different patient variables. Um, But this natural experiment is a type of observational study, which essentially mimics the control for confounding that's achieved in a randomized control trial, because the intervention that we had, the um, equipment change from the larger 10-12 trocar to the 8-millimeter trocar, um, the implementation of it was totally random in time. So the patient characteristics before and after that equipment change should also be totally random and mimics the control for confounding achieved in a randomized control trial. The data source that we used was an ongoing surgical registry that's at our institution. 
It's called the hysterectomy versus uterine preservation for pelvic organ prolapse surgery study or the PAP study. And it's a longitudinal surgical registry that collects data from women having apical prolapse surgery for women with stage two or more prolapse, um, including women having vaginal laparoscopic or open abdominal surgery. But we specifically included women having a laparoscopic procedure And because this data was already being collected, it allowed us to look back and answer our clinical question. Awesome. And what was the most fascinating finding that you found? The most fascinating thing was definitely the level of reduction in opioid use that we saw. We expected that there would be a decrease in opioid use, but we were really pleased to see how significant that reduction actually was. And the fact that our natural experiment study methodology really played out well, and we were able to demonstrate that the patient characteristics before and after the equipment change were were similar between the two groups and led to a significant reduction, not only in the amount of opioids used in hospital 24 hours after their procedure, but also significantly decreased the amount of women who were going home with an opioid prescription after surgery. And when we talk about opioid use and elective gynecologic surgery, really what we, our main concern is not only the patient experience and patient experience with pain, but the risk of persistent opioid use after surgery and our ability to really reduce that was something we were really pleased with. That's awesome. And really so necessary these days with the opioid epidemic. So for this procedure, what is actually your normal port configuration? Do you normally place your ports in the same configuration? Do you use standard sizing? Yeah. So if anyone is interested in the actual surgical techniques that we do, we do have a couple of uh, publications available that people could look at. So the uterine preserving laparoscopic procedures, uh, we have a video available on the CanSage video library website, which is publicly available. CanSage is the Canadian uh, Society for the Advancement of Gynecologic Excellence, which is the national MIS society in Canada. Um, So if you just Google CanSage video library, um, you can look up the laparoscopic uterine suspension technique. And then the hysterectomy-based procedure also is published in the International uh, Urogynecology Journal, and it's reference four in our publication if anyone has an interest in it. But essentially for both of these procedures, we place our ports in the same way, barring differences in patient anatomy or previous surgery. And it's very similar to the way that ports are placed for most gynecologists who would perform a laparoscopic hysterectomy in our general geographic area. So we use a 10 millimeter port at the umbilicus and you use that generally because we like to use a 10 millimeter 30 degree laparoscope. The left lower quadrant port is what we used Uh, for extracorporeal suturing and was previously a 10-12 port and is now an 8 port. And then about a hand's breadth above that still on the left side is a 5 millimeter port and then another 5 millimeter port on the right lower quadrant uh, for our assistant. In general, we place ports in that configuration barring differences in patient anatomy with respect to their uterine size or intra-abdominal or intra-pelvic adhesions. So it's fairly standard across the board. That seems like a excellent configuration to achieve these complex prolapse surgeries. So that's great. And I love the change to the eight port. That's also really an awesome advantage for your surgical procedures. 
So we see the increased popularity in using early recovery protocols and agree this could be a potential area to decrease opioid use for our post-operative patients. In your practice, how many opioids are usually prescribed? So definitely we agree about early recovery protocols and their advantages. And Foothills Medical Center in Calgary is actually an ERAS Society uh, recognized center of excellence. And one of the surgeons in Calgary actually helped spearhead and develop the ERAS guidelines. And so there's certainly something that we utilize for our patients in gynecology at our institution. As part of that, all patients receive a gram of acetaminophen and 400 milligrams of ibuprofen before surgery. And then they'll receive those things scheduled or other NSAIDs scheduled postoperatively in order to try to minimize the opioids used in hospital. And our opioid prescriptions in hospital are used by patients on essentially an as-needed basis. So in hospital, we'll typically prescribe something, for example, Tramacet, one to two tabs every six hours as needed, or hydromorphone, one to two milligrams orally every four hours as needed, IV breakthrough if required. And then when we are discharging patients home, we will prescribe opioids based on their in-hospital use. And if patients didn't require any opioids in hospital, we'll have a discussion with them about whether or not they think they need a prescription for opioids after surgery. And if they did use opioids in hospital, we'll still have that discussion and try to tailor the number of tabs that we give them based on how much they used after surgery. We operate on this basis because there's good evidence in pelvic floor reconstructive surgery that the number of tabs that a patient will need after pelvic floor reconstructive surgery is not usually more than 10 to 15 tabs of opioids. This is published in the American Urogynecologic Society. And because of that, we try to limit prescriptions for opioids to less than 10 to 15 tabs. And often it's less than 10 tabs and that's more than enough for patients. If patients are having day surgery and we're prescribing them something to go home with, we don't know what their use is going to be. So we just generally try to follow giving a prescription for less than 10 tabs and making sure that the patients know to also use regular Tylenol and anti-inflammatories if appropriate after surgery, as long as they don't have allergies or contraindications. And then also to call us if they think that they need more of a prescription and run out. That's awesome. So besides, you know, your ERAS protocol, what other methods of therapy do you guys use to reduce the opioids? I know you briefly talked about, you know, like pre-medication with Tylenol and NSAIDs. Do you use Marcaine at the injection sites before, after? Yeah. So beyond the acetaminophen and non-steroidals that are given before and after surgery, all patients, when we place our ports, we will landmark our port placement by using an infiltration of sensorcaine with epinephrine at all of our port sites. And we use generally a total of 20 mils for the whole procedure. So evenly distributed between all of those sites. As part of our ERAS protocols, anesthesia will give patients intravenous ketorolac at the end of the procedure. And then that will carry on with their scheduled non-steroidal anti-inflammatories afterwards. And those are the main things. That's awesome. And it sounds like you really do a fair amount of counseling and tailoring and personalization to the patients because so much of it is really setting expectations prior to surgery. Yeah, we patients really appreciate having that conversation as well. When we talk to them preoperatively about what to expect in terms of pain, 
how we intend to manage their pain and what their expectations can be in terms of using opioids if needed after surgery. Because there's so much in the media about the opioid epidemic and um, patients are sometimes fearful about using opioids for surgery and are really reassured by all of the other things that we do to minimize their opioid use, but also appreciate understanding what the expectations are and what their pain might be like and how they'll be able to manage it. Those are all wonderful points. And we think that's a great model for physicians to follow. So I wanted to ask you another question because a lot of physicians use larger trocars for needle entry. What are your opinions about other methods of uh, entering the needle during laparoscopic surgery to decrease the need for a larger trocar? I think as surgeons, it's really important for us to all have various different methods of needle entry, depending on the surgery that you're performing, the technique that you like to do, and then patient-specific factors. We really find that various methods of needle entry are beneficial, like backloading needles. We don't um, ourselves typically insert needles vaginally, either through the posterior fornix or through a vaginal colpotomy but agree that that's certainly something that could be utilized. We just find that in our procedure specifically, backloading needles through a five millimeter port doesn't always work to our advantage. The average BMI in our study was about 27. And so we just find that backloading needles, we have uh, seen problems with tissue trauma, subcutaneous emphysema, having their ETCO2 levels rise during the procedure, which limits our ability to proceed with laparoscopy. Patients can develop pain and trauma hematoma from backloading needles that get stuck in that site. And because we find that in our specific procedures, especially the uterine preserving procedures, the suturing that's done laparoscopically is under a fair amount of tension. It doesn't lend itself well to intracorporeal suturing or something like a rotor or a slip knot. So really all we're left with is an extracorporeal suturing technique. And because we find that backloading needles in our patient population isn't always successful, we like to use the ports that allow a needle to go in and out of the lumen. Um, Backloading needles is certainly an option and it's something that we often use with a straightforward total laparoscopic hysterectomy. So has this already changed the practice at your institution? Do you think it'll change your practice in the future? Yeah, it actually has changed practice at our institution, even beyond the division of urogynecology. So amongst our group, we try to use the eight millimeter port in any procedure where we would have normally used a larger 1012 trocar. It is more challenging to use for procedures where there's a larger volume of extracorporeal suturing for something like a laparoscopic coposacropexy, for example. So we haven't totally applied it to that procedure yet, um, but hope to in the future. The general gynecologists and the minimally invasive gynecologists at our center love to use the eight millimeter port now. And we've heard from many colleagues across the country, actually, that saw our publication and have found it to be really useful to advocate for themselves to obtain eight millimeter ports at their own institution so that they can use it for that purpose as well. I think that's great. We have eight millimeter robotic trocars, but we don't have, you know, other trocars at that size. So I'm definitely going to advocate for them to <laughs> consider having them here as well. So what implications do you see for future directions? You know, do you think the industry should consider creating smaller needles or 
different endocatch bags so that we can try and decrease the larger trocar sites? What what do you think is is going to be the future of this? Yeah, we would love to see gynecologic surgery move away from using a larger 1012 trocar in the left lower quadrant altogether. And primarily because this port location and port size has really been found to be a significant risk factor for post-operative pain, persistent post-operative pain, and that can have societal implications about opioid use beyond surgery. So I think there's a few specific ways that we can accomplish that goal. One is to make eight millimeter ports more available for gynecologists. And it's not just the fact that the port has to be eight millimeters in its total size. The actual lumen has to be large enough so that needles can fit in and out of it. Because we found that not all of our needles fit in and out of the eight millimeter port that we have. It's typically easier for needles to fit through metal eight millimeter ports because the lumen is larger because the way that the metal is milled, it's just a larger diameter internally. And so for the disposable eight millimeter ports, you just have to play with the equipment that you have available at your site to see which needles will fit in, will fit through it easily because you don't want the needle to get stuck and then get damaged so that it's not able to be used uh, laparoscopically. So if industry were to be able to develop ports that were eight millimeters and the internal diameter allowed a variety of different needle types to fit through it, that would help to achieve the goal of eliminating larger um, left lower quadrant ports. Um, And also if industry were to be able to create needles that were able to smaller a little bit to fit through the lumen, because the needles that we used in our study, we previously used needles that were typically CT2 or MO6 needles, and they are 26 millimeter needles, but they don't fit through the eight millimeter port that we have. So we had to switch to a V20 style needle, which is still the exact same size. It's 26 millimeters. But for whatever reason, the way that the needle is manufactured, it slides through the port a lot easier. So if industry can work together to find the two parts that fit together, then that would really be helpful. Very cool. So Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for your time tonight. Do you have any other questions or anything else you want to highlight about this study? Um, I, I think one thing I would like to highlight is that our study is really a reflection on the success of well-designed surgical registries that collect longitudinal data, because without that pre-existing surgical registry, we wouldn't have been able to look back at this data and determine this finding. And so as clinicians, we tend to focus on randomized control trials and that is level one evidence and it's the most robust evidence. But when you have data that's already prospectively collected is reliable and you can develop observational study designs to look at that data and find reliable findings, that is also extremely useful. And so we were just so happy that we were able to use the pre-existing data that we're already collecting through that surgical registry to be able to find the answer to our clinical question and see if there actually was a difference. And then this is also allowing us to look hopefully at one year follow-up data for these patients to see if there's any difference in long-term outcomes with respect to post-operative pain. And that will be really interesting to know as well. 
Thank you so much for coming here and spending your valuable time with us tonight. I think our listeners are going to be so excited to hear more about this paper. Thank you so much for having me. I really loved to share the findings of our study and talk more about it. Well, we hope you have a wonderful evening and thank you so much. This has been another episode of MIGS Front Page. Thank you so much to all our listeners. Let us know if you find any new articles that you've recently read in JMIG that you think would be a great feature for our podcast.